A series of laboratory tests, including blood, stool tests, serologic studies, and imaging techniques and other diagnostics like endoscopies are widely used when inflammatory bowel diseases or IBD is suspected on patients based on their symptoms and history. You are listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. I'm Laura Wingate, Vice President of Education, Support, and Advocacy at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Joining me today to discuss how to diagnose IBD is gastroenterologist Dr. David Binion, co-director at the IBD Center, director of translational research, and director of nutrition support service at University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Binion, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're very excited to have you. When do you use magnetic resonance interrography, or MRE, or capsule endoscopy for small bowel disease? This is a pretty important question. So when we think about some of our newer modalities in diagnosing inflammatory bowel disease, specifically magnetic resonance enterography, or MRE, and capsule endoscopy, these are pretty exciting techniques. They actually have some additional information that they can give us. But how we fit that into our routine diagnostic algorithm is still, I think, a little bit not defined. And we can take these on one at a time. When we think about MRE, the major limiting factor with MRE is expertise locally. Now, our colleagues in radiology have relied primarily on CT scans. The CT of the abdomen and pelvis have historically provided extremely good information about the small intestine and other organs inside the abdomen which can be very, very helpful in making a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. The advantage of MRE is it does not expose our patients to diagnostic radiation, and we know that many of our patients undergoing that evaluation are going to be young people. They're going to be teenagers, young adults, who are going to face a number of diagnostic tests throughout their lifetime. And the advantage of MRE is that it is a test that does not require radiation exposure. In addition, MRE can provide some important information about disease activity, MRE will be able to gauge inflammatory activity. It's a better technique for gauging inflammation in the intestine. So I would say the role of MRE is partly dependent on local expertise. If radiologists are available who are very comfortable using MRE, it's probably a superior technique compared to CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. In patients who have had prior CT scans, it's even more important to consider using MRE, again, as a strategy to limit radiation exposure across the lifespan. When we think about capsule endoscopy, this is a technique that has, again, grown over the past decade. Capsule endoscopy will provide some of the most sensitive detection of small bowel ulcerations or pathology, but right now we don't really consider it part of the initial diagnostic algorithm when we think about trying to make a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. Part of the reason for that is that capsule endoscopy does not have the ability to take histologic samples that would routinely be available with ileocolonoscopy and even upper endoscopy. So the capsule will detect very subtle findings that could be nonspecific, and that may not be as definitive as we would like it to be. There definitely is a role for capsule endoscopy in a patient where Some of our other routine modalities have not yet been successful. If we are highly suspicious about small bowel pathology and the routinely available endoscopic procedures have not been helpful and the patient does not have obstructive symptoms, it's always important to remember that there is a chance of capsule retention. It's in the neighborhood of 10 to 15% when patients have 
obstructive symptomatology. But if there is a suspicion about small bowel pathology and we need that additional information, then the capsule study can be quite helpful. What is the role of serological markers like ASCA or CBER1? So serologic tests, which basically tell us about the body's immune reactivity to organisms in the microbiome, in the GI tract, is an important area in inflammatory bowel disease. Many patients with inflammatory bowel disease will make reactions against yeast organisms, and this is where ASCA, the anti-saccharomyces cerevisiae antibody, will turn positive. This has been associated primarily with patients with Crohn's disease. More recent research has identified an antibacterial flagellin antibody, which is commonly known as CBER1, can also be highly associated with Crohn's patients. Now, again, the challenge with these tests is that it's not 100%. There actually will be individuals who are otherwise healthy who will make these types of immune responses. So the use of serologic testing is something which we would best consider an adjunct in making a diagnosis of Crohn's disease at this time. I think more interestingly, because the research that we think about in trying to define the idiopathogenesis of inflammatory bowel disease is really pointing to an aberrant immune response against some of the microbiome constituents, the bacteria, the fungal organisms, the archaea. When we think about people who make these immune responses and have these serologies turn positive, it's really highlighting potentially subgroups of patients and may actually carry prognostic significance. We don't have a definitive way of using this data at the present time, but I think as research moves forward, we may actually start to think about serologic profiles in a prognostic way in terms of the trajectory of the person's clinical story going forward should they turn positive and have the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. I'm Laura Wingate, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Benyon, co-director at the IBD Center on Translational Research and director of Nutrition Support Service at University of Pittsburgh. What is the diagnostic workup of an asymptomatic ileitis? Laura, this is actually a pretty challenging topic for a couple of reasons. When we think about an asymptomatic patient undergoing ileocolonoscopy, we're most commonly thinking about a person who might be having a screening colonoscopy. In the United States, the majority of individuals turning 50 are going to have an indication to undergo colonoscopy, primarily to look for polyps and early precancerous lesions that could be removed. Again, we're trying to have an impact on the natural history of colon cancer, and it's been highly successful in reducing that incidence over the past decade. But occasionally, the gastroenterologist doing that screening examination will enter the terminal ileum and find ulcers, sometimes aptus ulcers, sometimes more impressive stellate ulcers that would be otherwise diagnostic or would be a component of the diagnosis of Crohn's disease. So if we think about that person who is otherwise asymptomatic, who has objective evidence in their histology and their endoscopic findings that suggest Crohn's disease, we have to sort of put that into a framework to think about this. We have come to realize that there's a subgroup of Crohn's disease patients who really don't have much symptomatology. Our group here at Pittsburgh has actually published a series of papers on this topic and something we call silent Crohn's disease. It's the individual who really has very limited symptoms but has objective evidence of inflammation. So I would say it would be important to think about that individual who has ulcerations in the terminal ileum, perhaps bring them back to the office, undergo a complete history and physical with really careful questioning regarding past history of anemia perhaps, 
male patients who have had iron deficiency anemia. That's a pretty important clinical scenario to think about. It's not common for male patients to have uh, iron deficiency anemia. Female patients, females will have iron loss due to menstrual cycle and having had babies. But men would not have a clear reason, physiologic reason, for iron deficiency anemia to emerge. Looking for uh, nutritional abnormalities, hypoalbuminemia, vitamin deficiencies, having a history of obstructive episodes that might have been misinterpreted as GI flu. These are perhaps some of the things that we would emphasize during that follow-up history and physical. But when we think about the person who is undergoing a screening colonoscopy, we're talking about individuals who might be age 50 or over. It's common for that age demographic to be receiving medications such as aspirin or perhaps using nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Again, if we have an individual who has otherwise been asymptomatic, have detection of ulcers in the ileum during a screening evaluation, it would be important to bring them back to the office and to have that comprehensive history and physical, really determine if there are other contributing factors that could be responsible for those endoscopic and histologic findings. Aspirin is oftentimes used as a prophylaxis strategy for cardiovascular disease. Some of our patients will have heard the message that aspirin can be beneficial as a preventive strategy. They might have initiated aspirin therapy on a daily basis. If we think about the impact of aspirin on large groups of patients, there was a very interesting study conducted in Europe. It was the EPIC trial, where aspirin prophylaxis was given to several hundred thousand individuals who were followed over a multi-year time period. And interestingly, individuals who were using aspirin on a daily basis had a significantly higher risk for the development of Crohn's disease. Whether the aspirin was an accelerating factor or created a mucosal injury that then unmasked the disease is unknown. But again, there can be this overlap between aspirin and nonsteroidal exposure and the development of inflammatory bowel disease. What is the significance of granulomas on biopsies? The detection of granulomas on endoscopic pinch biopsies has been a hallmark feature of Crohn's disease. Normally, we think about ulcerative colitis as a chronic inflammation that is non-granulomatous. Crohn's disease patients, a subgroup of Crohn's disease patients, will have the epithelial granuloma detected on the assessment of the GI tract. So I think in terms of diagnostic differentiation between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, that is probably the gold standard. When we think about the rate of granuloma detection, it's actually quite low. Our group at the University of Pittsburgh did a comprehensive analysis of over 1,200 patients who had had endoscopic procedures with pinch biopsies. We found that the granuloma detection rate was just under 13% of those individuals who had a diagnosis of Crohn's if we think about surgical tissue, a person who has undergone an operation, granulomas will be detected at a variable rate, again, depending on the study, depending on the era in which this was reported. But our group at Pittsburgh actually found granulomas were present in approximately 21% of the surgical resection material from patients who actually had a defined diagnosis of Crohn's disease. So it's definitely a subgroup of patients. The lack of a granuloma on endoscopic pinch biopsy does not necessarily rule out inflammatory bowel disease. And we still have to think about going through that algorithm and that thought process, clinical findings, endoscopic findings, histologic findings, family history, risk factors, and then put that entire story together to make the diagnosis. If I think about one of the more interesting areas, many of the tests that we've talked about today may actually have prognostic significance. And if we think about the detection of granuloma in a patient with Crohn's disease, 
again, some recent work that came from our center suggests it is going to be a marker of severity. Granulomas are detected on a person who ultimately is diagnosed with Crohn's disease. That individual may have a higher likelihood of having an increased inflammatory burden or an increased operative history. A need for repeat surgery, essentially, is going to be double over a five-year observation period if we think about the cohort of individuals that we care for at a tertiary referral center. The challenges, think about making a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, will be intertwined with prognostication as we move forward. Again, this is a, an area that has some rapid development. New technologies that are becoming available will make it better and easier for gastroenterologists to make the diagnosis, but those new technologies may actually have the ability to help us prognosticate and stratify our patients so that we can best help those individuals who might be facing a more severe course of disease moving forward. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. David Binion, for joining us today to talk about how to diagnose IBD. It was great having you with us today. I'm your host, Laura Wingate. To access this episode and others in this series, and to download the ReachMD app, visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening.